Known as the father of black history, Carter G. Woodson dedicated his life to celebrating the historic accomplishments of black people, which led to the establishment of Black History Month, celebrated every February since 1976. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Thank you for joining us in the Our Common Ground celebration of Black History Month 2022. Tonight, we celebrate the contributions of four women who were giants in the purpose lifting of black power. Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Angela Davis with Michelle Alexander. Thank you so much for joining us. Black history matters. This is Listen, Learn, Liberate Radio at Our Common Ground. Listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. With me is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, a member of the Executive Committee of the Freedom Democratic Party and a candidate of that party for the United States Congress. Mrs. Hamer, tell us a little about yourself, uh, what part of uh, the South you come from, and how you got involved in. Freedom Democratic Party politics. Thank you very much. Uh, my home is in Rooseville, Mississippi. It's located in the Black Belt of Mississippi, known as the Delta area. And actually, the way I got involved in the Freedom Democrat Party is we tried to get in the regular Democrat Party. We tried from the precinct level up to the county and from the county to the state. I remember when we tried to attend the precinct meeting at the little polling place in Rooseville. It was eight of us, eight Negroes, went up to visit the precinct meeting. And the door was locked, and we couldn't get in. And we stood on the outside and held our own meeting. We elected our chairman and our secretary, our delegates and our alternates, and we passed the law to resolution and we moved from the precinct level on through the county and up to the state. The 24th of April in 1964, we organized at the Masonic Temple in Jackson, Mississippi, the Mississippi Freedom Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. And then the 24th of August in 1964, we went to the National Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, 
to challenge the seating of the regular delegation from Mississippi. Mm -hmm. In which you were unsuccessful. That's right. We was offered two votes at large as a compromise. In the convention. In the convention. Mm -hmm. But after 100 years, we wouldn't accept mm -hmm. a compromise because it didn't mean anything to 63,000 people at that time was registered with the Freedom Democrat Party, so we didn't yeah. compromise. So again, in January, beginning the 4th of January, the three candidates from the Freedom Democrat Party, Mrs. Gray, Mrs. Devine, and I went up before the door of the House of Representatives to contest the seating of mm -hmm. the five representatives from Mississippi and we was turned away, and we wasn't allowed to even go in to have, you know, to contest our seating. We didn't go there to be seated because we knew from the beginning that we wouldn't be seated, but we wanted to explain our side, whereas in a state that 42% of the people can't register, they wasn't representing us, and I think somebody, it's time now for somebody to be in Congress that's going to represent the people of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And we weren't allowed to go inside, but that didn't stop the challenge. We did have that day 149 congressmen that stood up against these people being seated. So we are still working with this challenge, and we hope by the last of this month, which is August, that we will have a chance to unseat these congressmen. Mm -hmm. Because actually, this voting bill that the president passed last week. It doesn't mean anything. And I'm not looking for a voting bill in 1965 when they are not enforcing the voting bill and our voting rights with the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed us the same rights to vote from the 15th Amendment in 1870. And at that time, 1870, Mississippi was readmitted back to the Union because they promised at that time that they wouldn't do anything to disenfranchise Negroes to keep them from registering to vote. So now it's a matter of a violation of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. And what I'm curious to see, do the Constitution of the United States mean anything? So far it hadn't worked, and I'm sick of seeing this kind of stuff on paper. We want them to do something about it because we are a part of America because we didn't come here on our own. Our parents and our descendants was from Africa, and we didn't come on our own, but we do want to be treated as human beings. And I'm fighting for human rights, not for eco right. Mm -hmm. I'm rather interested in one thing here. Uh, before you set up your own Democratic Party, you uh, tried to enter the, uh, the local Democratic Party, and I wondered why you did that, because my instinct, if I'd been in your situation, would be not to join that club, that democratic club or democratic organization, but to form another one with all the liberal people in the community uh, to contest uh, the elections as the democratic party. The reason we tried, if we hadn't tried to go in it, and then just set this one up, mm -hmm. they would have said from the beginning, if we had tried, we could have got in theirs. But you see, we done the only fair thing to do. We wasn't accepted, so we've set up a Freedom Democrat Party in Mississippi, 
and I think it's one of the most effective weapons in this whole United States. I see, I'm still a little puzzled. Maybe it's because I'm a foreigner. I, I would never join the Democratic Party in this country if I were an American citizen uh, because part of the party is, is uh, racialist. I'd say they'd have to throw them out before I joined it. And, uh, perhaps Europeans think more ideologically about their parties. They well, I don't, I, I don't think you think in, in, ideologic about it, well, but we got quite an education in seeing what the whole Democrat Party of this country was like. What is your impression of it? You know, in fact, I cried. I don't know would I really been involved in politics now if I had known it was like it is. But one day, I think, working with this Mississippi Freedom Democrat Party and so many great people that I find in this country, and especially these young people of this country, we will have a great democracy. And only through that that we can bring a change because I'm really fed up with covering up stuff, you know. This stuff has been covered up year after year. And we are beginning now to sweep it out from under the rug that the world can see that we are not free in America. And that make nobody free here until all, we all are free. Well, let me uh, clear up another point with you or have you clear up another point. Does the Freedom Democratic Party regard itself as a group that uh, wants to make the Democratic Party more democratic in, in the way that uh, Theodore Roosevelt and his Bull Moose tra Party tried to change the Republican Party, going back and merging with the party again when it, it had accepted his views? Or do you really consider this a third party now? Well, to me, it really seemed to be actually a third party because it is so far different from the Democrats of this country. And, and I don't see no other way other than a third party. Uh, and many people think of the Freedom Democratic Party as principally a civil rights organization that's entered politics. But uh, is it more than that? Does it have a wide sort of uh, program on a great number of issues beside this matter of, of voting rights and civil rights? Yes, and it is not an organization. And it is a party not an organization. I'm glad you made that clear. Uh, could you tell us something about the main uh, planks in the platform of the party, starting with civil rights, that exactly well, what you're aiming to achieve there in terms of legislation? Well, uh, we, we stand, and, and I don't know what I should say all of this uh, or not, but our policy are far different from the, the from even the National Democrat Party, it is it is it is very different. The things that we stand for, you know, mm -hmm. and in foreign policies, it's quite a different. Well, good. Now, on on domestic policy, I take it you stand for a, a greater uh, amount of legislation guaranteeing individual rights. Yes. Uh, and I I gather you don't think in terms of just Negro rights, but individual rights. Period. Individual rights. You mm -hmm. see. It doesn't matter to me whether the person is an Indian, a Jew, a Chinese, a Mexican, whatever, whatever nation they are. I think they should have their rights. Now, what, what you mentioned foreign policy a moment ago. Uh, for instance, uh, the biggest issue in foreign policy at the moment is the war in Vietnam. Does the party take any position in American involvement in in an Asian conflict like that? Well, right now I hadn't met with the executive committee 
to, you know, have no to say what stand that the Freedom Democrat Party will have on a policy of Vietnam. I have my own personal feelings about Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the party will come out with a policy on it? I'm not sure, but we mm-hmm. might. We have been accused of saying that, you know, the stand we had taken, but at the time it was said that we had taken, you know, made a policy of what we felt about Vietnam. The the uh, executive committees at that time hadn't had a meeting, you know, mm-hmm. to say what we would say. But personally, me, I'm against uh, America mm-hmm. going to Vietnam. And the reason I have several reasons why I don't think that we have any business in Vietnam. First place, I don't think that you can uh, tell me how and clean up my house if your house is, you know, is nasty. I think we will have to think in terms of cleaning up our own place before we can go and do a job some other place. One of the other major issues regarding Asia, of course, is recognition of China, uh, what they call it communist China here, um, and um, admission of China to the United Nations, of, of, of uh, Peking government to the Chinese seat in the United Nations. Do you have, does the party have a position on that? Well, we don't have a position on that. But uh, I hear the word communist quite often. In fact, mm-hmm. I have been called a communist. And I begin to question now if mm-hmm. if communists do communists stand for all the things we fight for because, you know, if all the things we fighting for, if communists stand for that, it would be a whole lot more than we've ever been offered in mm-hmm. this country. But I don't know anything about communism. Uh, if I've ever seen a communist, I don't know it. Well, in fact, uh, President de Gaulle uh, is pledged now to actively work for the seating of, in the United Nations of, of, of Communist China. He's recognized Communist China, and I don't think he's a communist. Is that right? Of course, yes. Well, that's great. <laughs> you know, uh, you see, I don't know, I don't know actually anything about communism. I don't, but everybody I see, you know, if we push just a little further than they think we should push, you know, then they mm-hmm. say, this is communist. Mm-hmm. So I began to wonder about communists because from what the people is really telling us, it must be very good. Well, I've, uh, I've lived around the world. I don't like communism, but the aspects of communism I don't like, which are the uh, uh, repression of uh, certain types of freedom, the uh, control of the press and so forth, we are finding that in many countries we are supporting. That's, that's very true. What about uh, questions like nuclear disarmament? Has the party come out with any positions on this? Not so far. Mm-hmm. No, n- not on NATO? Uh, no, we mm-hmm. hadn't come out with no policy. Yeah. What about, uh, well, does this include domestic legislation, for instance, on uh, health? Now, I'm from Britain, and in Britain we regard it as a right that everyone, whatever his means, should have um, medical care uh, as much as he needs and the best available. Uh, without to thought about of cost, the doctors and patients don't have to think of the money. Is this uh, yes, uh, anything we that appeals we to have. you? Well, I, I actually, I don't know how far this will go, but, I, mm-hmm. you know, we push for medical care, you know, because not only can aged people be sick without money, but young people can be sick without money. And I think mm-hmm. any person that needs medical mm-hmm. care should be, you know, treated. Do you have any feelings about the ownership of industry or anything? Uh, is, is there any policy on this? Do you, have you taken any positions on this? The industry being yeah. in the state of Mississippi? Well, uh, in the state or na- nationwide. Uh, have, you, have they got any theories about economic uh, 
structures of, uh, in society about uh, whether something should be nationalized or made into cooperatives? Or Yes, we, we are talking about that. In fact, now, one of the young men that have been working for us is uh, you're bringing out something that's called Bricks for Freedom, and if we can get help with this, we, you know, we'll have people trained to make bricks and also concrete and then real contractors to teach these people and if now if this uh, government is going to do anything for the poverty stricken people it will be time for them to invest some money in and these people can be paid as they be trained to work and can build their own uh, homes you know that will be a decent place to live in instead of the present condition of the homes that we live in now. I noticed for the past, I would say the past five or six months, to keep the news of the Freedom Democrat Party, you know, from being in the light of people, for people to really know what the Freedom Democrat Party purpose is and what it's doing, the news about the Freedom Democrat Party has been completely sabotaged. We can't get out news. Sometimes we'll have a press conference, and they won't even show it. Even the national papers that have been sympathetic to the uh, to the Negro cause, like the New York Times? The New York Times hadn't been doing too much mm-hmm. recently. I don't know from what source they're getting pressure, but I think somewhere along the line they are being pressured, and I know we're not getting the news that we, you know, at the beginning, like in uh, Atlantic City in 1964, the, the news media was almost run over you to see what the Freedom Democrat Party had to say, but now they are, you know, beginning to kind of get away from the Freedom Democrat Party. Mm -hmm. Now, what has been happening to the uh, fortunes of the Freedom Democratic Party? Uh, Has its membership been growing? And would you uh, tell me, uh, first off, whether it's uh, an all-Negro party or whether it's it's, uh, multiracial? Well, we have, the party is open to any person, you know, that's over Mm -hmm. 21 years old. It's open to all people. In fact, the executive, the executive uh, national committee man is a white man, and he is a Mississippian, Reverend Edwin King from Tougaloo College, which is a chaplain there at Tougaloo College. He is a national committee man. It's open to all people. And I would say that he's grown quite a bit for the past, uh, I say for the past uh, two or three months. Well, in the last around. two or three months, it's been growing more rapidly then? Yes, it, uh, because so many people now, like the people that's on strike in Mississippi, that wasn't involved in anything, you know, not only now participate with the uh, Mississippi Freedom Labor Union, but the Mississippi Freedom Democrat Party, too. Do you have an approximate idea of your membership? Well, it should be. I'm not sure, but it should be close to uh, 78,000. Really? And how are they organized, and where? Are they across Mississippi and Alabama uh, only, or Well, wider? actually, right now, the Mississippi Freedom Democrat Party is only in Mississippi, but uh, they have uh, something, I would say, similar to the Freedom Democrat Party. It's beginning to pick up in other states, you know, people as Negroes in other states, even in the north, in New York City, and Brooklyn is beginning to run candidates, you know, in really? that area. That's right. Must be scaring the daylights out of the Democratic Party to split the vote for them. <laughs> it might be, but that is what's happening well, now. That's one way of changing the Democratic Party. 
And it's one way of bringing a change, you know, for the uh, poor people all across the country. There's another party uh, now forming that's uh, uh, out here called the Federalist Party that breaks away on, from the Democratic Party and also, of course, from the Republican Party on foreign policy issues and on all these other things uh, that's forming out here with a strong commitment to civil rights and against the war in Vietnam and uh, similar things. Do you know that? No, I didn't. It's very, just starting here. Before joining the Freedom Democratic Party, Mrs. Hamer had been a sharecropper on a Mississippi plantation. Her husband also worked there. He had advanced to the position of foreman. But even for a foreman, which is the high point of opportunity for a Negro there, life on a southern plantation meant long hours, low wages, humiliating conditions of work, and perhaps worst of all, no hope of being accorded fair treatment, a decent standard of living, and respect as a human being. However, Negroes were now demanding equal rights, and thousands were attempting to register to vote for the first time in their lives. Among them was Mrs. Hamer. Immediately after taking the literacy test to qualify for registration as a voter in Mississippi, she learned what it costs to challenge the system of white supremacy and white privilege in that state. I was forced away from the plantation because I wouldn't go back and withdraw you know, my literacy test after I had tried to take it, I wouldn't go back and I had to leave and my husband was forced to stay on this plantation until after the harvest season was over and then the man that we had worked for, he'd taken the car and the most of the few things we had had been stolen and I've been in jail and I've been beat. Yeah, tell us about that. On what grounds did they jail you? It wasn't no grounds, you know. I, I, I don't understand that until today. I had been to a voter registration workshop, you know, to they were just training and teaching us how to register, to pass the literacy test, and it was giving us enough training that we could tell other people, you know, how to pass the literacy test. So we had attended a workshop from the 3rd of June to the 8th. We finished the workshop on the 8th, and then we got the uh, Continental Trailway bus to come back to Mississippi. And we got to uh, Winona, Mississippi, uh, I would say about 10.30 that Sunday morning on our way back to Greenwood, and that was we had gotten in 25 miles of the voter registration headquarters. And the bus stopped in Winona, you know, at the bus terminal. And four people got off of the bus, you know, to use the uh, restaurant to get food. And two people got off to use the washroom while I was still on the bus. When I looked through the glass, I saw the people rush out. And one of the girls who had gone in the washroom, she just got back on the bus. And I stepped off to see what had happened. And uh, Miss Ponder told me that it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police on the inside and began to tap them on the shoulders with billy clubs and ordered them to get out. And I said, well, this is Mississippi. So I got back on the bus, and as soon as I was seated, I saw them when they began to put the five people what was, you know, off the bus, but they wasn't over uh, six feet from the bus, began to put them in the highway patrolman's car. And I stepped off again because I was holding one of the ladies' irons, you know, that they was arresting, and she said, get back on the bus, Miss Hamer, and then I heard somebody scream from the car that she was in and said, get that one there, 
And then a white man stepped out of a car and told me I was under arrest. And when he opened the door and I went to get in the car, he kicked me. And they carried me on down to the county jail where they had the other highway patrolmen had carried the other five. And they, you know, when I, we walked in, when I walked in with the two white men that had carried me down and they cursed me all the way down, they would ask me questions and when I would try to answer, they would tell me to hush. And I, when, we, when I walked inside of the booking room, one of the policemen went over and jumped up on one of the Negroes' feet that was with us, and then they just began to, you know, put us in cells. And I was put in a cell with Miss Evesta Simpson, and after I was put in this cell, I could just hear some horrible screams and horrible sounds, you know, of licks. And I saw one of the girls was 15 years old was with us, and she passed my cell, and she was real bloody. And then they asked the little man that cleaned up the jail to go inside and mop up that blood. And then I heard some more screaming, and I heard some awful sounds. And I would hear somebody when they say, Can't you say yes, sir, nigger? Can't you say yes, sir? And they would call her names that I wouldn't want to go on tape. And she said, Yes, I can say yes, sir. So I said. And she said, I don't know you well enough. And I would hear when she would hit the floor again. And finally she began to pray. And she asked God to have mercy on these people because they didn't know what they was doing. And after a while they passed my cell door with this young woman, Miss Annelle Ponder. And one of her eyes looked like blood. And her hair was standing up on her head and her clothes had been torn from the shoulder down to the waist. And then three white men came to my cell, and one of them was a state highway patrolman because he was wearing a little civil plate across his pocket that said John L. Bassinger. And he asked me where I was from, and I told him I was from Rouville. And he said, I'm going to check that. And he went out, and I guess he called Rouville. And they did, didn't like me in Rouville because I worked with voter registration there. And when he came back, he said, you're damn right. He said, you're from Rouville, all right, and we're going to make you wish you was dead. And they led me out of that cell into another cell, and he gave a Negro prisoner a blackjack, and he ordered me to lay down on a bunk bed. And a Negro prisoner said, do you want me to beat her with this, sir? And he said, you're damn right, because if you don't, you know what I'll do for you. And I laid down on the bunk like he ordered me to do. And the first Negro beat me. He beat me until he was exalted. And after he beat, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. And during the time he was beating, I began to work my feet because that was a horrible experience. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro that had beat to sit on my feet while the second one beat. And I just began to scream where I couldn't control it. And then the white man got up and began to beat me in the head. I have a blood clot now in the artery to the left thigh and a permanent kidney injury on the right side from that beating. These are the things that we go through in the state of Mississippi, just trying to be treated like a human being. But still, this is called a part of America. I suppose it's a naive question, but is there no possibility of you 
making a civil complaint or criminal complaint or whatever it would amount to against these people for this beating? The, the Justice Department brought a suit against these five law officials from Mississippi. And they had their trial in Oxford. And they had every evidence in the world if it ever was going to be any people convicted. Because we had flew to Washington, D.C., and had the pictures made, and they had the pictures today of what happened to us in that jail. The bus driver, they even had the waitresses from Winona at the uh, bus tournament that said we hadn't done anything. We hadn't done no demonstration. The Negroes that they forced to beat me, they came and they told the truth. They told how these white men had made them drink corn whiskey before they did beat us because they figured, you know, if they didn't have something in them, that they might not do it. They told all of that, and nothing have been done. Those same men, I guess, are still wearing their guns. It puzzles me that Negroes in the South have not set up, in a way, territories of their own uh, with their own armed people. People have got the deacons now in the South, this armed defense organization, so that you're outside of the control of police officials like this. Why has this not happened? Is it because the white people there are so powerful that such a they rebellion are, has been impossible? They are very powerful in the state of Mississippi. But some of the people, I think, is beginning to get where now they just don't care. They are beginning to see if they try to do anything for themselves, well, they'll be killed anyway. By the police officials? By the police officials, because it's nowhere that I would call myself going in the state of Mississippi to be protected by a police official, because mm -hmm. they are worse than a savage. The federal government isn't able to effectively give you security? No, because, as you know, the three civil rights workers that was murdered in Mississippi, they said their civil rights hadn't been violated, but they are dead. Mm. And one, one of their killers is still the sheriff? That's right. Mm. In fact, the same men, uh, Rainey and Price, was assisting the people across the street when they was having memorial service this year for Cheney and Goodman and Michael Srona. Mm -hmm. And Michael Srona was a Jewish person, mm -hmm. but he was one of the greatest men I ever met. Mm -hmm. You knew him? I knew him very well, and his wife, Rita. And, and you know, I couldn't have went there for a memorial service, not and let these same two police officials guard me across the street. I wouldn't have been low enough to low their death to go across the street, let them guide me across the street. When it hadn't been for them, they wouldn't have been dead. What do you feel about the deacons? This is frightening some white people, but I, I, can't, I, I can't understand why they don't understand that this is a natural development. I think it's one of the greatest things that ever happened. In fact, I admire those people. I respect those people because they are doing what... I believe every Negro under the heaven feel if he doesn't have the guts to say it. Mm -hmm. What do you think of Malcolm X? Malcolm X was one of the best friends I ever had. A remarkable man. Oh, he was a great man. In fact, I had invited Malcolm X to come to Mississippi, and he was supposed to come to Mississippi on 
Monday and was killed that Sunday. Mm-hmm. Now, he had belonged to the Muslim organization. Is, are the Muslim groups making much progress in the South? They seem mostly to be in the North. Mostly in the North because a whole lot of things that the Muslims stand for, I don't agree with their policies. But I did respect Malcolm X, and Malcolm X was a great man. What uh, what can you think of that the Muslims advocate that you don't agree with? Can you think of One of the things is setting up a separate state. You know, just give the Negroes a state. They want a state, you know, set up. The, uh, it would have to be more than a state for 20 million black people in this country, but just to have so much separation, you know, that... Uh, we couldn't, you know, we wouldn't have to deal with white on no terms and just put us out, what I would say, on a deserted island. And what we had thought of with a lot of white people in the country, we'd last about uh, two days. You thought of a reverse racism. Yes, and just, just be wiped off the map. Mm. Because, you see, I, I take this stand that I don't see all people as bad. If we didn't have some good white people... It wouldn't be anybody standing up, you know, trying to help bring about a change and make things better, not only for the Negro, but it will benefit every human being in this country if we were just free. What do the people in your movement think about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and his approach to this whole problem? Well, uh, I couldn't just say in Mississippi because people, it is people have different uh, feelings about uh, Dr. King. Mm. They feel that uh, he's accepting too slow a rate of progress? Well, to me, it is somewhat slow, but Dr. King's organization do have some great people like Mrs. Septima P. Clark that wrote the book Echoes in My Soul is a great woman and there's quite a few other people that I admire in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and respect. But uh, I take this stand with any person, uh, a person that was born in the middle class that have never had to suffer. You know, he can afford to take things maybe easier than I can, and all I've ever done was suffered, you see. And, and uh, in fact, a person that's born in the middle class and have always had things somewhat decent, he can't make a decision for me because he actually don't know how I feel. You know, when we mention middle class and middle class Negroes, I'm thinking of Leroy Jones, who is middle class Negro, but is one of the most uh, violent of the young Negro writers and, and lecturers. How how do you, your people feel about him? Well, uh, in Mississippi, there's not too many people know Leroy Jones, although I know Leroy Jones. But it's a wonder every Negro in the United States didn't feel exactly like Leroy Jones. It's enough to have happened to us that we should all, you know, if we wanted to, to feel like that. But I just, I've never been, you know, my parent brought me up as Christian people, and I believe strongly in Christianity. And uh, to me, if I hate you because you hate me, I'm no better than you are, and I don't hate a person because they hate me. I'll try to free that person, too. Are there any people you see uh, among the people who are speaking for the Negro, um, apart from the people you've mentioned in your own organization, for instance, Louis Lomax or James Baldwin, or people like that, 
that you regard as being significant now for the future? Uh, yes, I think uh, James Baldwin is a great man. I have great respect for James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. Are you hopeful of the future of, for your party politically? Yes, I'm hopeful for the future of this party because um, all across this country we have young people that's very aware of what's going on in this country. Your membership is largely young people, is it? Uh, uh, in the state, members of the Freedom Democrat Party will have to be 21. Mm -hmm. But we have so many other people, you see, yes. out of the state of Mississippi is very concerned about the Mississippi Freedom Democrat Party. Yes, but I mean, people say 21 to 30. Are they most, is it in that age group you find most of your membership in Mississippi? No, we have people from, I would say, 21 to 75. Oh. Including a lot of older people then? Yes. Mm -hmm. They've given up their old attitude of accepting things. Uh, yes. nothing you to know, lose in now. In fact, uh, well, some of the young workers there said that they, uh, they had never okay. been in a place that uh, had as many older people working as we have in uh, Mississippi. Will you be standing uh, for election at the next uh, congressional elections? Well, uh, we plan to run people, you know. In fact, uh, we have people in Sunflower County where I live as we hope to run for our circuit clerk in Sunflower County, and we will be having people to run all over the state for state election, county, on up to the United States representatives and senators too. I suppose money is always a problem. Oh, money is always a problem. More than for, more, more than for the other parties, though? Yes. Uh, do you find you can get uh, a space in the newspapers and radio stations and... We hope to have, if we have enough money. We don't always have enough money, but we've been broke all our lives, so we go some time without it, you know. Mrs. Hamer, I must let you get back to your friends. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome, and thank you. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. In America... Only rarely in one's lifetime that you come across somebody that you consider a truly great person. And that's the feeling I've always had uh, about Ella Baker. It's been a great privilege to know her. It's a great privilege to introduce her to you now. Here she is. I had said that I'd had great difficulty trying to put down something to say, not only because of tonight's occasion, but because I suppose, like many people who have lived a long while, who've seen a lot of things take place, and who still want to see where we are going, I am among those who are finding it pretty difficult to, to talk these days in the first place. And tonight I am finding it even more difficult because I must admit I had not responded to this occasion in the way that apparently other people have responded. Maybe I am at fault. But when Anne asked me 
if the dinner this year might be, quote, built around me, I said yes without any hesitation because I agreed with one other statement she made, namely, that of course this has elements of using you, but if you're like me, you do not object to being used for a good cause. And as far as I was concerned, this was it. Because irrespective of whatever else could take place tonight, to me the most important reason for being here was for some people who did not know about SCEF to learn about its work, and for others of us who have been involved in its work to gain new life and new dedication to its support. Now, maybe I was wrong in taking this position. Maybe I should have let my ego find some satisfaction in the fact that, quote, I was being honored. But I must admit to you that I have always found it very difficult to play that role because in my estimation, one must do what one's conscience bids them do. And from no one except yourself expect applause. I have been introduced in various ways in my life. I've had the introductions, maybe I should be a little bit uh, historical or reminisce a bit. I remember when I traveled for the NAACP in the early 40s, and throughout the South, I was weighing then about 40 pounds less than I'm weighing now, and I was 27 years younger. And on many occasions, when I arrived in a place, because they, the people had been accustomed to seeing what we used to refer to uh, facetiously as bedecked and bebosomed ladies, and here I appeared with neither bedecking nor not too much bebosoming. It was pretty difficult for some of the persons who had to introduce me to find a sense of security in presenting the speaker. And so what they usually would say after some uh, words that maybe could be said about anybody, they said, and here we have our national officer. And this, of course, meant that they said, well, don't blame me if it's doing all right. It's the national office that sent it. But in 59, I went down to help them in an effort to break through the barriers to voter registration in Caddo Parish, Louisiana. And among the things that we were doing, of course, was getting around to various sections of the community to try to get people to understand how they would have to, what they would have to do in order to qualify to register and to get them to come uh, out uh, to attempt to register. And on one occasion, after we had been around a while and uh, my habits, my work habits had become known, one of the dear brothering who introduced me after he asked the sister to say, ask, he said, now if this sister will give us a number on the piano 
and then we will have a few words from the old workhorse. And this was what I was supposed to represent. Now, I remember those instances, and I remember hundreds of other instances when I had the privilege of thinking, at least, that I had spoke what people were thinking in their hearts. I remember one occasion in the heights of, uh, I guess, the World War, that war that was being fought in the 40s. I spoke at a church in Tampa, Florida. And there were, oh, a couple of hundred of people, about 200 people present. And we were recruiting NACP memberships. And out of that group, we got about 80 that morning. And one sister got up and said afterwards, she said, I'm joining because I know what this woman is saying, what she is saying, any mother can understand. Now, I wasn't a mother, but at least I was glad to know that in attempting to communicate, I had communicated with people in terms of their understanding and in terms of their drive. A lot of nice things have been said about me tonight, but I said that my main concern for being here was because this was an occasion to call attention again to the work that Skeff is doing. You've heard it said that this is the 30th anniversary of its existence. And I know of no organization that can measure its effectiveness in terms, uh, can measure its effectiveness more effectively in terms of the repression that have been, that it and its staff has suffered than SCEF. SCEF, as Ann has indicated, or at least my meeting with Ann and Carl came at the time when they had been uh, accused of a number of things, sedition among them, because they had bought, or bought a house or bought a house and sold it to a Negro veteran who had been unable to buy a home out of the ghetto. And the house was then, I think, bombed, I believe, and the veteran and Carl were accused of having done it themselves. And I met them. I then was strictly a civil rights worker. You know, in the civil rights movement, there was not very much difference made or distinction made between civil rights and civil liberties. In fact, we may not have dwelt too well upon civil liberties in those days. And after meeting Anne and Carl, one of the things that became very clear was that those of us who were engaged, especially the young people at that time, who were engaged in the nonviolent movement, had not understood that the very laws that were being used against them, like Freedom, like uh, opposition to assembly, uh, like exorbitant and unusual bail, 
These were things that had to do with the civil libertarian aspects of a struggle that they knew very little of. But thanks to Anne Braden especially, those who had not known came out of the movement, I think, at least informed, and I trust are now convinced that the struggle has to take on a double effort in the direction of combating the violations of the civil liberties that we claim to have as a result of being a part of the American system. I've often felt that the marches were just, to a large extent, outlets for people finding expression and they assuage their sense of guilt or they uh, did away with any further need for involvement by becoming a part of the march. They are necessarily, no doubt, they are a necessary part of dramatizing a situation. But why march to Washington? Why not march to Long Island? Why not march to Westchester? Why not march to the slums of New Jersey? Why not march to Harlem, to Bedford-Stuyvesant? Not in terms of a physical march, but in terms of recognizing that what is happening in these places in terms of poverty is a responsibility that has to be dealt with by those who are not impoverished. In other words, those of us who have money have got to speak to those who are in power in a way that they understand, which is how? Through the ballot, through your pressure, and through the determination that something has to be done. Poverty, war, we are pretty well on the way to at least dealing with the question of war, but beyond the question of the Vietnam War is the larger question of what kind of foreign policy does the Vietnam War represent and what kind of foreign policy will there be after the Vietnam War? Does it represent, as has been indicated in some of the things that we've read, that our government has reached the point that it thinks in terms of being the uh, policemen for the rest of the world against what they call the threat of communism? Or is it truthfully said, as some of us think, that it is the representation of the, those who are in power taking a position against the inherent right of people to seek their own self-determination in the ways that they think are best suited to their problem. Does this represent the kind of foreign policy 
that you and I, as citizens of this country, want to see followed? If so, that's one thing. But if not, what is our responsibility? Where does our responsibility begin and where does it end? When we come to the question of racism, this is the ticklish one. It has been said, and we must give credit where credit is due, the first to perhaps utter this were those who are now not very well received, the SNCC people, when they first said that we are in a racist culture, a racist society that is dominated by a racist philosophy and an exploitation that to a large extent is based on racism, it wasn't heard. And now that it has been said, and perhaps to some extent documented by the report, or the president's report on uh, urban, uh, what, does it, what is it called? <laughs> urban disorders, yes. We call them rebellions, somebody calls them riots, and the president's report refers to them as urban disorders. This report comes out and says that we are tending towards becoming two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Now, the report hasn't said a thing that hasn't been said before over and over and over again. But the great tragedy is that it wasn't heard. It was said each time there was a protest against racial segregation. It was said each time that people like Stokely Carmichael got his head beaten because he was trying to resist the racist aspects of the Southern society. And then we were much more eager for the fight against racism because of what? It was over there. It was in the South. We could always point the finger. But when it, began, when it begins to explode at our very doorstep, what do we do? We get afraid. And we get fearful. Now, it's understandable. It's understandable that you can be afraid of disorder. But that is not enough to be afraid. There is a need to understand the reason for the disorder. Not an outbreak has taken place. But what there weren't some factors that had obtained for years and years that had helped to create the climate, create the hatred, create the suppressed anger that made it necessary in the minds of the people who gave vent to it the way they did to do what they did. This, you say, is condoning the rioters. It is not. It is an effort to say to people who say they, say they would like to do something to save a country, it's an effort to say to you and to me that we must understand what takes place on the riot, at the riot level, is a reflection of a lot of things that have not been on the surface before and that have 
and festering like an old sore. And what happens with an old sore when it festers? Frequently, it infects the entire body. And we are now at that stage, I'm afraid. One of the things about the question of racism that, or at least in talking to people, the question that frequently has come up recently with me is, well, we are not guilty, personally. Of course, you're not. I don't know that there's anybody in this room has carried on a campaign of racism per se. But I doubt that there's anybody in this room who has not at some point been guilty of supporting a racist culture. And we must search ourselves to find out how we have been guilty. Not for the sake of just wallowing in our guilt, but for the sake of facing the fact that the future of our culture, of our country, depends not so much on what black people do as it does depend on what white people do. This is a hard lesson for some of us, that the choice as to whether or not we will rid the country of racism is a choice that white America has to make. But you say that when blacks call for separatism, they are guilty of racism in reverse. How many times have you listened when the separatism is echoed What's behind the call for separatism? There are many things are said, but in my estimation, there are times when the most radical makes the statement that you can't expect anything from Whitey. What he is really saying is show me. He is begging to be shown. Now how can you do it? I don't know. I wish I knew how you could show. But one thing is certain. You can't wait, sit back and wait and say, well, if the blacks aren't going to work with me, I don't want to be bothered with them. And I don't want to interfere with their receding. And if someone asks me, well, what can I do? I have only one answer. You have to do something in terms of what you believe and in terms of your own conviction. And if you're not going to be able to be motivated by your own conviction and not wait for blacks to tell you where to move, then we are doomed. I can assure you I didn't intend this, but I listened to what was being said, and I listened to what was not said when Stokely and Rapp appeared before you. I know there was a great deal of perhaps apprehension as to whether or not things would turn out all right. 
I even understand, I understand that the hotel had raised questions of the possibility of riots. <laughs> and I think what took place in connection with Rapp's appearance in Maryland might be something of a lesson. He has been in jail for a number of weeks, and it was all started because of his appearance in Maryland, Cambridge, Maryland. And you remember all that was said, the story was to the effect that Rap Brown appeared, spoke, and was followed by a riot. Maybe most of us know all the details, but some of us may not. I'm going to just read a couple of lines, if I can find a way to see, from the newspaper, from a newspaper clipping that deals with the question of the Cambridge riots. Before I read this, let me say, this represents a re report that was prepared by a team of social scientists headed by a Dr. Robert Shellow assistant deputy director for research at the National Institute of Mental Health. And it was prepared for, as part of the urban, uh, the study on the urban disorders. But it wasn't included in there. We have some other documentation of it, but this will serve the purpose. To the extent that Brown encouraged anybody to engage in precipitous or disorderly acts, the city officials are clearly the ones he influenced most. Indeed, the existence of a riot existed for the most part in the minds of city officials. And to the extent that Negro disorders occurred, it can best be interpreted as a response to actions of the city officials. Brown was more a catalyst of white fears than of Negro antagonism. The disturbance more a product of white expectations than of Negro initiative. The 24-year-old Negro leader was indicted on charges of inciting to arson and riot. I think the report points out that the school took, the burning at the school took place about four hours after he had been shot in the arm by a deputy and after he had left and that the people in the community really came out and tried to help put out the school blaze. But there is the possibility that the chief of police had decided that he was ready for a riot, and so helping, there had to be one. Those of us who are not ready for the burning will go down to our city hall go down to our mayors and to our governors and even to our federal government and question 
why so much artillery is being bought and stacked and stocked to deal with people who are fighting against an oppressive or a repressive system that they have become victim to. The voice of those who believe that life is more sacred than property must be heard now at no other time. One other thought, and that has to do with the whole question of repressive action. I think it was this week that the 25th anniversary of the Warsaw Gallery, uh, Warsaw Ghetto, the resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto took place 25 years ago. Someone has said that those who fail to remember history may live to experience history. What I am suggesting is that the trend towards repressive measures against those who are resisting the war, those who are resisting the racist repressions, those who are resisting the poverty that they endure, those who are challenging a system, more and more the repression is stepped up in terms of what? Eliminating those people in one way or the other, containing them. Rap Brown was sent to jail, not because he had been tried and found guilty of a crime, but because this was an easy, he was an easy target. And if we take the position that, sure, I don't believe in that kind of imprisonment, but you must remember what he said, then we aren't really understanding that the real issue is repression. Not repression for whom, but repression against anyone who violate for who is exercising what we say are our constitutional rights of freedom of speech. An aspiring theocratic dictator or authoritarian might have at their disposal could make The Handmaid's Tale look quaint almost in comparison. The hypocrisies of Gilead is that it's steeped in this religious veneer. They are really rapists and uh, somehow cover everything with this veneer of religion. In a way, 85, if you think about the, the storming of Congress um, in January 6, um, you know, how many, I'm very bad at math, speaking of dyslexia, but how many years is that? Because in a sense, she was writing a, a, an almost prophetic vision of the future to come. Because in, the, yeah. you know, in yeah. the book, she has uh, Congress being decimated, people killed. She has this sort of right-wing movement that is very much present with us now in the militias. Um, you think about uh, the storming of the Capitol and the, and, the, and the Trump presidency that depended entirely upon the white evangelical vote. You know, you can take Putin out of it. You can do all sorts of things. But if you take the white evangelical voter out, Trump's never president.
So when um, Gary, when, when, when people like Ralph Reed, who, by the way, got into politics because of me and my dad, sat down with Trump and gave him a list of the Federalist Society judges that he wanted appointed in, in trade for bringing the evangelical vote. This is like a page ripped out of, the, of Atwood's book. I mean, this, this is genuine, you know, political deal-making and machination aimed at women's rights most directly. If we just get rid of that one qualifier. So they're not delusional, but they are part of a, a, a mass delusion. And the kinds of things that we expect to see are the things we've already seen. Uh, they're the sorts of things that happen to our people and the sorts of things we experience. You can read books where we're <coughs> suffering from the same symptoms during slavery. So they're the, the problems that you get. Let's first start with the three noxious emotions. So those three noxious emotions are sadness, fear, and anger. And those emotions have their own, each one has their own single stressor. So but without belaboring it, when anytime somebody is sad, that's because of loss. They could lose a family member. They could lose a uh, they could lose some money, they could lose their job, uh, they could lose their freedom. So, If America Fails, live streaming at the TruthWorks Network YouTube channel. Join us as we continue the series, If America Fails, The Coming Tyranny. Coming up February 24th, Dr. Karen Waltonen. She is the editor of the Atwood Journal. We'll be looking at the role of women, sexuality, sex work, and erasure, reassignment in an authoritarian society. We hope you'll join us. 8 p.m. TruthWorks Network, YouTube, live streaming. If America Fails, Thursday. 8 p.m. If America Fails dot live, a TruthWorks Network production. And America Fails. Are you sure? Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're connected to many faith traditions. Over the years, it's become increasingly clear to me that justice questions are fundamentally moral and spiritual in nature. Ultimately, I think we have to ask ourselves, how might we live in right relationship with one another, honoring the dignity and humanity of all? What type of economic and political systems are most consistent with human liberation how do we co-create a nation and a global community where every voice and every life truly matters? What is necessary, individually and collectively, to overcome histories of oppression, repression, control, and marginalization? And what are the values and belief systems that ought to ground us and guide us? What are we willing to do or unwilling to do to make another world possible? These are the very questions that Angela Davis has devoted her life to wrestling with and attempting to answer. And I'm thrilled that I found here at Union a community of people, of students, 
people of faith, people of conscience, including many who do not claim a faith or a religion at all, who are eager to wrestle with these questions and dig for meaningful answers. Which brings me to our conversation tonight. Several months ago, I told Serene Jones that I'd love to host a public dialogue series that's devoted to wrestling with these very questions that brought me to Union in the first place. And she said, well, who do you want to talk to? And the very first person I named was Angela Davis. Uh, Angela in, yes. In so many ways, you represent what this dialogue series is all about. You know, we've entitled this series The Spirit of Justice, um, and your spirit is as bright and as beautiful as it was when you first burst into the public consciousness. Uh, your spirit has remained on fire even as you've changed and evolved over the years and the times have changed and evolved and devolved to some respect. Hearing from voices like yours, I think at this moment in our history is as vital as it's ever been. The last presidential election was a very painful reminder uh, that it's dangerous to view American history as a slow but steady march towards greater freedom, justice, and equality for all. But one thing I think is clear, and that's since the days of our nation's founding, there have always been people, people of all colors, backgrounds, and walks of life, who have in various ways shown up in American history as revolutionaries, challenging us to reimagine what dignity, justice, and equality ought to mean, and forcing us to reconsider who should be worthy of care compassion and concern. And I think Angela, in so many ways, exemplifies what it means to live life fully animated by a spirit of justice. Whether or not you agree with everything she has ever written or said or done in her life, it cannot be denied that her spirit is alive with a passion for justice. So let me begin by saying a very personal thank you for being here and for your courageous voice um, and your willingness to be in dialogue with our community. We are very, very happy to have you, are we not? <laughs> well, where to begin? Um, I guess it's a bit of a cliche to say that the personal is political, but I really can't help but begin with a personal question. Um, I wonder whether you would be willing to say a few words about your spiritual and religious background. We're in a church, a great big church after all, and you've been invited by a seminary. And I know that there are many seminary students in the audience. Where are you? Yeah who are eager to understand uh, their own spiritual journey, their spiritual path, in relationship um, to your life's work. Uh, I know you grew up going to church um, and Sunday school, and that you've had working relationships and friendships with people of all faiths and a range of faith communities. Um, but I wonder how you would describe 
your spiritual background and whether you see a spiritual dimension to the questions of justice I, I just described. Well, first of all, Michelle, thank you very much for the invitation, and I'd like to uh, thank uh, um, Union Theological Institute for sponsoring this event. This was my first opportunity to visit Union, although it has played a major role in, in, in my thinking over the years, so thank you very much. And thank all of you for coming out this evening. It's really always great to be in New York City. <laughs> and I have to apologize in advance. I, um, I, I have a cold. I think I'm um, recovering from it. Uh, but uh, my voice sounds very strange to me. Uh, so hopefully it'll sound okay to you. Um, yeah, uh, my, my mother was a Congregationalist, uh, and for those of you who know the United Church of Christ, uh, the Congregational Church eventually became a part of UCC, and my father was a lay reader in the Episcopal Church. So I can remember as a child being shuttled back and forth, uh, you know, going to the, going to the Episcopal Church um, um, on some St. Paul's on some Sundays and going to the Congregational Church on others. Eventually, I think that um, because my mother was much more involved uh, in religion than my father, because he eventually kind of stopped going to church, uh, uh, I ended up uh, a Congregationalist. But that's, I, that's not really um, that significant uh, by itself. What, what I remember is the, the, the sense of, of justice, yes, justice. Uh, that was always a part of our experiences there. As a matter of fact, um, many people have asked me, uh, when did you first become an activist? Uh, and I don't really know when I first became an activist. Sometimes I say maybe it was when I was two years old or, or whatever. But I do remember at the age of 11, um, the first congregational church in Birmingham um, which was located um, uh, on Dynamite Hill. Some of you may be familiar with the histories of the, uh, the bombings that uh, took place in that neighborhood. Um, at the age of 11, I joined an interracial discussion group that was taking place at the church. Within a very short period of time, the church was burned. Uh, and I mention this because many people are under the impression that the 16th Street uh, church bombing, as uh, tragic as it was, claiming the lives of, 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 of friends of ours, uh, that was not the first time a church had been bombed or burned. It happened all the time. It was a kind of a, a daily or weekly or monthly occurrence. And 
And so, um, even though um, for a very long time, I, when, I, when I went home, I had to go to church when my mother was still alive. Uh, uh, and I maintained a connection with uh, that church. I came to consider my own spirituality um, more broadly. Uh, and how would I characterize my relationship to spirituality now? That's a complicated question. Uh, I mean, I've been practicing yoga for a very long time and, and, and meditating for a very long time. Uh, and it's only recently that it has become apparent to me that we have to figure out how to collectivize uh, these practices. Uh, and what I so appreciate about uh, the, the, the leaders of... Um, Black Lives Matter of the the network, uh, Patrice and Alicia, whom I know best, is that insistence on acknowledging the spiritual connection uh, and always cultivating that uh, that 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 spiritual um, unity, and I think that is a major challenge of this period. Uh, uh, particularly given the fact that we here in the United States of America um, have, have been very much influenced by the notion that the U.S. is exceptional and that somehow this is the best place in the world. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not even going to talk about the current president, uh, um, you know, but even Obama liked to talk about American exceptionalism. And I think that that is a major challenge uh, today and that we have to um, figure out how to produce relationships that go beyond the boundaries of space and uh, relationships that exceed the temporalities that we are accustomed to working with uh, and so I would say that that uh, means that we have to move um, toward a spiritual dimension in order to develop those connections and relationships. Yes, I mean, certainly exceptionalism implies superiority. And if you're going to have a relationship with another human or another nation that's based on uh, recognition of mutual equality, it's difficult to imagine how that can be possible when using the language of exceptionalism. Um, you know, I think many people um, who know your name but do not know the full body of your work uh, understand you to be a revolutionary or understand that you were. Um, and or that I try to be. Or that you try to be. Still. <laughs> well, that's actually what I'm interested in is, is what that that means to you. You know, we're living in a time right now where it's becoming increasingly common for people to say that revolutionary change is required or that what is needed is some form of revolution. Um, obviously, in the last presidential election, Bernie Sanders was calling for a political revolution, but well before Bernie, 
there was, you know, the Occupy uh, Wall Street movement. There has been Black Lives movement for, the, for Black Lives, where obviously more radical and revolutionary demands have been made. Um, indigenous organizing at Standing Rock. Um, you know, much of the immigrant rights organizing and um, climate change activism has become much more radical in its critique um, of, of capitalism and of our political system and people have been more open in recent years about describing themselves as radicals or revolutionaries. And uh, I find myself now wondering what kind of revolution we really want. Um, there was a time when I was a liberal reformer and imagined that we could tinker with the criminal justice machine and get it right if only we filed more lawsuits or lobbied the right elected officials, that there was a way somehow to fix this system. And I myself now no longer hold that view and understand that it's impossible uh, to reimagine our justice system without also facing um, the challenge of global capitalism and the way it generates disposable people and disposable communities. Um, but what does it mean to say we want a revolution today? And uh, in our class today uh, that I co-taught with Andrea White and Kelly Brown Douglas, we talked about Jesus as a revolutionary and different models and understandings of what it means to be a revolutionary today. Um, I'd like to show a quick video um, clip of you responding to the question of what it means to be a revolutionary back in 1970. Um, yes. So this video was actually filmed when Angela was in jail uh, awaiting trial. Um, and... Uh, well, let's just, let's just take it from there, and then I'd love for you to respond um, to, to how you described what it meant to be a revolutionary then and whether it's changed or remains the same for you today. Can we have the first video? Reverend Williams is the host of a weekly religious program on this station entitled Vibrations for a New People. Because of their friendship, Ms. Davis asked to appear on Vibrations and in so doing granted the first American broadcast interview since her arrest in connection with the August 7, 1970 shootout at the Marin County Courthouse. Her pre-trial procedures have taken the longest time of any California trial in history. Throughout those 13 months, there have developed charges that she's a political prisoner. Because of this, she's drawn international attention and has become one of the central figures in a very large and militant movement reflecting the concerns of oppressed minorities. We're presenting this program at this special time because people of all persuasions from all parts of the country and the world have come to regard Ms. Davis in strong terms. Most have formed these opinions in favor or against her without ever being exposed to her writing, her teaching, or other personal statements. If this program results in nothing more than better informed but unchanged opinion, it will have been worth our attention. And one final note, 
While this conversation was filmed in the jail where she awaits her trial, the discussion in no way touches upon matters directly related to Ms. Davis's trial. It was filmed under specific guidelines and viewed by the attorneys involved in the trial. This represents further programming in connection with the various aspects of Angela Davis's involvement in the controversial militant minority movement. Well, Angela, we're going to wrap a little while about uh, a number of things, but uh, I guess one of the most important things that we can start off talking about is the fact that uh, you have been called uh, a revolutionary, a militant. Uh, uh, much of the media has pictured you this way. It's talked about all over the world. What, uh, what, what, what do you see as the meaning of the term revolutionary? Well, there's no single, simple meaning of the term revolutionary. A revolutionary is a man or a woman who is a lot of things. But basically, the revolutionary wants to change the nature of society in a way to promote a world where the needs and interests of the people are responded to. A revolutionary realizes, however, that in order to create a world where human beings can live and, and love and be healthy and create, you have to completely revolutionize the entire fabric of society. You have to overturn the economic structure where you have a few individuals who are in possession of the vast majority of the wealth in this country that's been produced by the majority of the people, and you have to destroy this political apparatus which, under the guise of revolutionary government, uh, uh, perpetrates the most incredible uh, misery on the mass of the people. Sounds like a pretty good definition to me. So when you see that, does that still feel as true for you now as it did then? And um, how would you characterize um, the nature of the revolution that's required today? Well, first of all, I don't know whether I've ever seen this. Um, uh, but... Um, that, did you recognize Reverend Cecil Williams? Okay. He uh, came in... T uh, well, let me, let me tell you a little bit about my relationship uh, with uh, Cecil. After, after I was um, fired from my position at UCLA in 1969 for being a member of the Communist Party, he invited me to speak at Glide Memorial. And he did this long introduction um, in which he maintained that Jesus was a communist. <laughs> and of course, he talked about, you know, the, throwing the money lenders out of the temple and so forth. 
um, so yeah, that was Cecil Williams, uh, who uh, is uh, an amazing activist uh, and has uh, has made uh, countless contributions, particularly um, in the Bay Area where where I live and where he continues to live and work. Um, yeah, I think I pretty much agree with what I said. And I mean, as a matter of fact, um, I think probably it is even more true today than it was then when you consider that eight billionaires own and control the same amount of wealth as 50% of the population. That is obscene. And I don't even know whether at that time we could have imagined the extent to which capitalism uh, would uh, in, in, invade uh, lives and and, and countries and societies and dreams. Uh, and, and so in a sense, I think it might be possible to argue that we need a revolution today even more than we did at that time. So has your understanding of what kind of revolution is required changed? since 1970. Is the way you would describe it today different than the way you would describe it back then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It would be different. Uh, it would not... Uh, it would not dispute the necessity of structural change. Uh, but, but at that particular time, I think that uh, many of us assumed that if we could only overturn capitalism and at the same time deal with racism, that the revolution uh, would have been won. Mm -hmm. and, and of course it was very important to recognize the degree to which racism um, lies at the very foundation of capitalism. Uh, as as um, Cedric Williams uh, pointed out, capitalism is racial capitalism. Capitalism uh, would not exist uh, without colonization and, and, and the genocidal assaults on indigenous people, the settler colonialism uh, uh, that incidentally still continues in places like Israel. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But, but I think there was a lot more that we were missing. Mm -hmm. And not that we could have understood the complexity of, uh, of, of change in the way we understand it now. Uh, this, this is what's really exciting about, um, about trying to be a revolutionary activist. I always say I, I try to be revolutionary. You know, I would never presume to point to myself as a revolution. But I try, what I find exciting is the fact that so many things change over time. We learn so much more.
as a result of trying to uh, theorize and imagine the possibility of change that would be economic and that would also involve racial justice and equality, we began to recognize that there are other issues. What about gender? And not only, not only what about gender as we perceived it when the term was initially introduced into our vocabulary, but, but what about gender within the context of a non-binary uh, uh, notion and structure? That, you know, I often, and, and you, you probably know this, I often use the example of uh, the ways in which the activism of, of trans prisoners completely revolutionized the way we uh, thought about the prison industrial complex and the work that the institution of the prison does. It not only accomplishes uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the whole process of incarceration and it's not only about uh, um, uh, catching um, the detritus of society are produced by global capitalism, uh, but it's also about the ideological work that it does, how it makes us think about our relations to each other. And certainly uh, the, the institution of the prison is a is an ideological um, apparatus. Uh, it promotes the ideology of, of, of gender with which we, we, we work. So there are things that are only possible to learn in the course of activist struggle. And I always like to use St. Clair um, uh, Drake's notion of um, what he called the epistemology of praxis. There are certain knowledges that one will never discover in a text, but certain knowledges that are only produced in the process of activism, in the process of practice, in the process of praxis, the epistemology of praxis. And so what's exciting is that we have learned so much more. Yeah, I agree with um, what I said back in 19, when was it? 1970. Um, but I have to say that it was also limited as well. Uh, and I'm really happy that I've had, that I've been able to remain alive in order to witness how things have changed. And I say this because, you know, some veteran activists feel like they're being left behind and they get really frustrated and they want the movement to remain where it was when, when, when they were considered the leaders. And I'm just so happy that there are generations and generations standing on our shoulders and they have accomplished so much more than we could have ever imagined. You know, speaking of what's possible to imagine and what's not, I was struck in reading your book, Are Prisons Obsolete? How you begin in the introduction reflecting on the fact that 
even though you were doing anti-prison work and challenging the prison system um, when you were a member participating and supporting the Black Panther Party and beyond, that you did not ever dream or fathom the possibility that, you know, from your jail cell in 1970, that our prison population would quintuple in the next couple of decades. That it was just absolutely uh, unfathomable. But in looking at your clips, your video clips, I realized you did have some sense that something was brewing, um, that something was coming. And uh, so let's take a look at the next two clips. Are there more clips? Oh, yeah. There's a couple more. You didn't, you didn't warn me. <laughs> There's going to be a couple more. The next two, the next two clips. Um, the first one basically states the thesis of the new Jim Crow, like 40 years ago. <laughs> um, and then the second one talks about uh, what is likely if we don't raise our voices and get serious about what the prison system represents for our society. So can we take a look at the next two clips? Wonder, I wonder, do, do, you, do you really see this as, uh, as a means of uh, committing uh, a contrived, uh, engaging in a contrived effort on the part of, of those who make the decisions uh, of eliminating black people, of con is this a form of suppression also? To, to, to make sure, in other words, that, that black people are railroaded into prisons, into jail? Uh, well, in, in the whole history of uh, the United States, the impact of racism has been to attempt to contain black people, has been to attempt to stifle the uh, uh, desires towards liberation. One of the ways in which this is accomplished is by trying to convince black people that they're completely powerless before this huge apparatus and that uh, the police can just come into the community and, and uh, pick someone out, kill them as they have done on many, many occasions in the past, charge them with something they didn't do, railroad them to prison, send them to the uh, gas chamber. Uh, this is just one of the many ways that uh, the system, and it's not a contrived effort in the sense that it's done consciously by a few men up at the top. It's built into the system. It's built into, uh, it's, it, it's built into the nature of this society. And getting back to the question of what a revolutionary is, a rev black revolutionary realizes that uh, we cannot begin to combat racism, we cannot begin to effectively destroy racism until we've destroyed the whole system. One of the things that uh, struck me then, and of course I'm constantly aware of this, is that uh, because of the movement that has galvanized around me, uh, there is a lot of public attention on me and my case, and there are certain kinds of things that uh, I can directly appeal to uh, people for, but what about all of the uh, sisters and brothers that we've been talking about during this interview. What about all of the other thousands and thousands who are in America's prisons uh, today? Uh, people should begin to realize that they have a responsibility to see to it that uh, um, America does not 
head in the direction of fascism, and it begins right at the level of the prisons. That's why the prison struggle is so important, because I see it as being uh, a signal as to what the entire society uh, will be about in the future. And that's why I think it's in the interest of all the people, many of whom may not uh, know anyone personally in, in prison, but most black people, of course, have had some contact with uh, the prisons. People should really uh, begin to uh, express themselves aggressively and boldly and demand that something be done about the prisons in this society today. So that was back in 1970, you know, and when I, when I really sit with that reality, um, that you and others were calling on us, Americans to focus on the prison system because what was happening then was a signal of where our society was headed. And yet somehow we didn't see what was ultimately coming. Why, why do you think it was so hard um, for us to see what was coming down the pipe? Um, what was the nature of that blind spot? Or was it that um, forces were that we underestimated um, the forces. Well, I don't think it was a question of underestimating it. Um, there was no awareness at all about the predicament of people in prison. And I, I should say that uh, many of us who were activists began by joining campaigns to free political prisoners. Uh, uh, we were involved in campaigns to free members of the Black Panther Party, uh, the Soledad Brothers. And this insight uh, regarding the role of the institution of the prison, particularly with respect to the production and reproduction of racism, actually came from prisoners themselves. Uh, George Jackson, uh, for example, if you read his work, you will see that he was one of the pivotal figures in urging us to move from a simple um, sense that, that we had to challenge political repression um, and recognize the institution of the prison as an apparatus of political repression, but rather we had to think of it in a larger sense. Uh, and, and, you know, oftentimes the insights of prisoners get lost. Um, you know, there's a, now the interdisciplinary academic field, critical prison studies, and that would not have been possible without uh, the work of prison intellectuals. Uh, so I was, um, I think, giving voice to an insight that was developing at the time, um, uh, particularly with uh, particularly given the fact that the Black Panther Party had been founded in 1966 uh, uh, and there was this new consciousness about the role of the I would say conscious new consciousness about the role of the police in our communities uh, uh, and so it was these were ideas that uh, were collective in in, in nature. Uh, 
But you know, it's true. I I I, I forgot that that back in 1970 uh, we were saying some of the same things that we're still saying today. Uh, of course, we have a much more nuanced, much uh, more complex analysis of how it is that an institution that is putatively designed to provide security for the larger society uh, is so central to the historical production and reproduction of racism. Uh, but um, it took a long time before a movement could actually emerge. Uh, uh, people were willing to stand up for political prisoners, but not for the criminals. You know, because there was this distinction between those who were in prison because of their political activities and beliefs and those who were in prison um, because they had committed a crime. So we had, during that period, to, to work through new definitions of what counts as a political prisoner. Uh, and um, as a matter of fact, that may have been, this was 1970, we did a book when I was in jail that uh, I co-edited with Bettina Apteka. It's called If They Come in the Morning. Um, Jimmy Baldwin had written me this open letter in which he said, if they come for you in the morning, they will be coming for us that night. And that letter... Uh, was circulated all over the world and was in part responsible for the the along with of course the activism of of communists and others uh, in virtually every country in the world was responsible for that that movement uh, um, but um, yeah it, it was difficult to persuade people. Ideology is a hell of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I can remember talking to people sometimes who had relatives in prison, but they were afraid to associate themselves mm -hmm. with a campaign that uh, seemed to um, support in some way people who had been declared criminals by the society. And so again, you know, talking about revolutionary change, um, thanks to the activism of huge numbers of people, thanks to your work, um, now this issue is central, is, is central to our sense of possible democratic futures in this country. You cannot talk about uh, democracy in the U.S. without talking about what has happened uh, uh, within the prison system, the prison, what, what we came to call the prison industrial complex because we wanted people to recognize that it's also very much connected to global capitalism. It's very much connected to the fact that and this is where things, this is what we didn't see in the 70s. We didn't see, we didn't predict the explosiveness of global capitalism. 
Um, you know, we thought we had seen capitalism. We thought we knew what capitalism was. Uh, but then during the 1980s, uh, when corporations, and this is when um, the guy who calls himself president made all of his money, by the way. Uh, uh, when, when corporations began to move towards other parts of the world where labor forces were cheaper, and thus this deindustrialization process in this country, which left people without work, without jobs, and at the same time, we begin to see the deterioration of social services. The public good no longer makes any sense. Uh, ed education begins to be privatized. Healthcare begins to be, be privatized. And so the, the very same conditions, and this is a connection that I think we have to constantly point out, the very same conditions which led to massive immigration and led huge numbers of people from those countries that were being exploited by the corporations that moved to take advantage of low wages there, um, the very same conditions created a situation where people with no work, no possibility of work, no way to get an education, get produced as, um, as, a, as you were saying, a surplus population, and you have to figure out what to do with them. And at the same time, the prison industry is developing so that if you can profit by taking advantage of the economic racism, the last hired, always the first fired, huge numbers of people of color without work and turning to surplus, turning to underground economies, right? And so, you know, that's where the drug issue and other issues come in. So it's, yeah. You know, one question I have or one thought I have is that, you know, as capitalism has changed and evolved since 1970 in ways that were impossible to predict and as racism continues to morph and adapt in new forms um, in ways large and small, not just from slavery to Jim Crow to the ghetto to, you know, mass incarceration or mass criminalization, but in ways that are smaller, I wonder, you know, is it necessary for us to think even more deeply? And I, I have to say, I think the movement for black lives is an example of that kind of deep thinking about how the nature of our activism um, must evolve and adapt as well to the times. Uh, I had a conversation with um, Eddie Conway a couple of years ago. I had an opportunity to spend some time with him. and. Eddie Conway uh, was a leader in the Black Panther Party who was arrested and convicted of a uh, crime he most certainly did not commit. He had an alibi for his charge with murder, had an alibi. His manager at the post office attested uh, to the fact that he was there. He couldn't possibly have been at the scene of the crime um, and was convicted um, almost certainly for political reasons was locked up and spent, what, 40 years? 40 years. 40 years in prison. And so he, he mentioned to me um, that when he was on his way home from prison 
after having spent 40 years locked up on account of his political commitment um, and his work with the Black Panther Party, <coughs> on his way home and the freeway or the bridge that he's on is being shut down by Black Lives Matter activists. And he's just overcome with emotion that, my God, I went in 40 years ago over police violence, um, protesting police violence, and now the road is being shut down. I can't even get home because another generation of activists are fighting over the exact same thing. Forty years of my life have gone by. Um, and so I wonder, in reflecting on kind of the past 40 years, how much progress you feel we've made. It sounds like, in many respects, you believe that our thinking and our understanding has evolved um, in really fundamental ways. Um, but when we look at the nature of the systems um, that we're challenging, both whether it's the prison industrial complex or global capitalism itself, how much progress would you say um, has been made and what's required of us now? Well, you know, I think that um, we have to be able to say that there's been very little progress. At the same time, there's been an enormous progress. Um, and recently, recently I've been um, trying to think in um, more capacious terms, I guess you might say that. I, 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 I'll tell you about a, a visit to Australia not that long ago. I go to Australia a lot because I work with an organization in Australia, a women's, uh, it's called Sisters Inside. And so over the last um, 15, 20 years, I've, 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 I've um, made many, many trips to all parts of Australia. And, and I, uh, I was... I've been so impressed by uh, the ways in which indigenous people in Australia imagine their lives in relation to lives that have uh, um, unfolded before them, a connection that they feel with people who um, lived a thousand years ago. Or ten thousand years ago, uh, and and it struck me that we rarely think in those terms. We think about who we are right now, our families, our communities, our issues, our struggles, but we don't imagine ourselves as having been produced by generations and generations of people. And what is most important about uh, black people in this hemisphere is that we see a continuous history of the struggle for freedom. Um, and I wake up every day black. I know it. I see myself. And you know what? It's absolutely okay for you to know this. 
It's not okay for you to erase me. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.